Hey everybody, thanks for listening. We're back again with part two of Legends of Muskie Angling Power Panel from the 2019 Muskie Odyssey. We want to thank Muskies Canada for letting us bring this series to you, some really great content. We hope everybody's learning alongside with us. It's just fantastic stuff. So here we go. We're going to pick it up with Bill Barber talking about research-based, scientific-based approaches to finding these big fish. Hope you guys all had a great season. We've got some great stuff coming up, but for now, let's enjoy this amazing panel. Uh, working with Dr. Bruce Tufts at the Queen's University and some of the studies are going on. All these studies are available to all you guys if you research it on the internet. John Farrell, John Castleman, um, both Mike and John have done extensive research. And water fluctuation has a lot to do with where they're going to spawn, how the back bays flush out, so the young of the year has somewhere to go. So that creates a change. But in my type of fishing, you know, like, like Mike says, there's, you, know, you're, you can either chase muskies or you can wait on them. Most of mine is a waiting game. I'm waiting for the, I'm only fishing for one fish. Most of my clients are calling me, they know, like, we're fishing for one fish, we're fishing for the fish. So we're spending a lot of time over open water, we're waiting for that moment to come. So lots of times, and again, I don't fish with my clients, we're driving around and we're just looking. And I'm waiting and waiting for that right moment for the, everything to line up, all the stars are in the right path, you know, you got your moonrise, moon underfoot, you know, sunrise, all the different factors line up to be on that spot. But the water flow in my end of the world doesn't make a great amount of difference. It makes a big difference in the spawn, but it really doesn't make, a, for the way that I fish, doesn't make a lot of difference. Lots of times I'll go over 100 feet of water and go out there and just look for bait before I even start looking for muskies in the water. It's very dramatic for me and John. Yeah, it is. For these guys, they're the ones to ask the question. It affects yeah. us a lot. I mean, it, yeah, it, it dictates everything. Work. I mean, we, we get much big water. See, the big difference, too, is don't forget, with Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River, our maximum current flow, usually going down there is two and a half mile an hour until you get down way downstream, and then it picks up. We're, yeah, so you've got a lot more current. It's a, it's a lot higher. I live down that way, but, I mean, I, I fish in Kingston, my home waters. But it's a, there's a big difference. You know, and, and John and Mike can explain, like, current is a huge factor for them where they are. I go down, and I'm baffled, at, you know, down in some of these lower spots. I, I think he wants to speak to you. I mean, water, oh, yeah, water big fluctuations for me and him could be the difference in a year of no weeds. Could be a difference in bad watercolor. I mean, it's not as dramatic as it is for Bill, but for us, it's it's very dramatic. You don't forget. Now, both of them can be fishing stained water. Where I'm fishing the water, you can look down. It's 35 feet. You can see a dime on the bottom. So it, it's it's a bit different. But we're trying to find this out. The more research that we're doing, we're finding through extensive studies led by Jim Hutchings and the uh, St. Lawrence River Institute sanding projects. We're finding out that back bay embankments where the muskies are spawning and the St. Lawrence in our area, they weren't getting flushed out because there's not enough current. So high water in those rare years like you had are a real help to us because it cleans them out, gives them fresh spawning grounds, which will increase the fishing down the road after I'm gone. You know, you talk about social media and you see Which hose face? A strap on. Probably, right? Sorry. Probably strap on a chubby. 
Well, you know, my baits are all over the province in the states now, and uh, it really depends on the body of water you're fishing. Uh, in Georgian Bay, all my huge fish are come on my giant flat shads and the flat shads. Uh, obviously, it's no secret that if you're going to the St. Lawrence, you should have a fatty down there. The fatty is king. You know, um, one thing about the baits is every bait that I make, I love. And that's one thing about lures. Everybody should love their baits. Uh, and what I mean about that is you should check the split rings. You should check if the hooks are bent. Are they sharp? Is the lure tuned good? You know, I, I throughout the years, I, uh, you know, I always get one guy, oh, my bait's running off to the side a little bit. Uh, it's no good, you know. And I tell the guy, I said, well, you know, you put a pair of pliers on the toe eye and you're just going to move it a little tiny bit and she's going to center up and she's just going to come alive to you. You know, so uh, we spend a ton of hours on the water uh, and you should have that bait at an ultimate best in the water. You know, uh, my baits uh, coming from Georgian Bay, a lot of our fish up there, uh, we either get our eats just before the bait is going to bounce off the shoal, off bottom, or after I pound it over the top of the shoal with a flat shad, as soon as it comes back into open water, that's our prime area is getting bit. Uh, as far as the St. Lawrence go, it's uh, a, a structure or a contour type of bite. Uh, you know, you set up some baits, a short line behind the boat or short lines on your planer rods and just covering water um, is, is the key, you know. Um, I just wondered, uh, is it, how many people in the room own a hose bait? Quite a few. Any, any guys in here got 50 inches on a hose bait? A few, a few. Congratulations and thanks very much. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's Georgian Bay. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> October 16th, 1988, I was lucky enough to see Ken O'Brien's 65-pounder. Uh, uh, you know, I got pictures of it, and it is a true monster. Uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy over the Georgian Bay fish, uh, Ken O'Brien's 65-pounder. I was actually in the area when it was caught, uh, Martin Williamson's fish in November 30th, 2000. It was a 61-pound, 4-ounce fish. And, you know, the question was about how do you keep your confidence up? Look at a picture of these fish. You'll get all the confidence in the world. Uh, you know, for my money, uh, you know, Laz has caught every fish in the St. Lawrence. <laughs> he knows them all by name, you know, and I, he hasn't come up with a 70-pounder yet. Uh, he's probably going to do it, but, uh, you know, the Georgian Bay is just a huge, vast, 
body of water, I'm sure there's 70-pounders dying of old age out there that nobody, like Mike says, there's places in the bay that nobody's very seldom get fished, you know? Um, obviously, the St. Lawrence is a huge body of water, but, you know, when you're in the river system, it's narrow. It, it gets worked over by quite a lot of people. So, you know, for my money, it's Georgian Bay for sure. Thanks, Sean. You know, I agree with Sean. I, I think it's Georgian Bay. Uh, you know, I, I think the Great Lakes have got it, and that's probably the case. And, and but it probably won't get caught because there's not enough people fishing it. You know, and, and I think the, your opportunity to get, you know, big fish in Georgia Bay in that is is a later fall opportunity, and it's a late late fall. You know, they when some of these fish move closer to their spawning grounds. You know, and they, when you talk to biologists, they see some of these some of the bigger fish they get not the seventy pounders, but they're getting big fish in these river mouths in the spring. They're going to stage closer to those areas in the fall, and so a lot of that stuff becomes late October and November opportunities, and so. Uh, so as late as you can go, you can fish. I just don't think there's enough anglers spending time in that system that late in the season to really have an opportunity to catch it. It's, 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 a, it's a lightning you know, strike in a bottle kind of thing right now. I mean, comparatively, what we have a place like, let's say, like Green Bay, which is a Great Lakes fisher, fishery where we have a lot of fish getting you know, in that 50-pound-plus category. That age group is getting there. But we have hundreds of people fishing that area. And so a lot of 50 pounders are getting caught because on any given day, there's on a, you pick a Tuesday in Green Bay in November and you will see 25 to 35 boats musky fishing in an area. And so on a weekend, it's 75 to 150 boats musky fishing in the fall. So it. I'd like to, there's nothing yeah, n- not even in there. Yeah. I, I like to think that me and my water have a shot at it also, but I spent four or five weeks a year for 20 years running to his water, and I got to tell you, I shake when I get up there. I mean, uh, I don't believe in the old 70-pounder theory, but it's probably your best shot at coming into contact with a fish that has never been caught before, and I don't know if people have had the luxury of that, but fish that have never been caught before, wild fish, because wild fish do a different thing. You can catch them in July, and they can have 28, 29-inch girds. And Georgian Bay is, you know, it's giant. And, uh, yeah, I've left my, I'd have to, you know, I'm torn because I live where I live, but Georgian Bay is definitely probably your best shot. Like, yeah, what I, what I, what I made a point of doing when I went up to Georgian Bay and the waters around it and all that is, the thing I wanted to get across in my head the first is that I had to be the first people, first person to ever fish those areas and those spots, whether with Georgian Bay or Nip or the North Channel or Sault Ste. Marie. I didn't want to go somewhere that somebody had fished. So I, I had the privilege of doing this in the 90s and, you know, 2000s. Now what I would do if I went up there again, I definitely try and push the envelope and, you know, fish some of the stuff that's got real super small population densities. I mean, there are like four or five weeks a year for 20 years. I didn't even put a dent in the place. I didn't fish half of 1% of it. Did I fish everything I wanted to? Nope, didn't have enough time. But I definitely, you know, I definitely think outside the box and go where there's no people. And, and you're excited when you go up there. Yeah.
yeah. I mean, uh, and everybody knows the feeling when you go to the Bay. I mean, no matter how, whether you have to sit in the hotel because the wind's too big or whether you're out there and you haven't, look, it's very easy to do 714s without a bite up there. I mean, you got to have big shoulders, eh? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're, if you're chasing a true giant and you're going to Georgian Bay, you got to have big shoulders. And yeah, no, I shake when I go up there. Well, of course, I believe it's going to be the St. Lawrence River. Again, it's going to be a fish that's never been stung. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to put some big fish in that, you know, may only have been a meal away, and there's some that are questionable. I know of a fish that uh, the year before last was caught. I was fishing beside the gentleman that caught it that probably might have rivaled Ken's fish. You know, Sean, Sean comes down and fishes too, like everybody fishes the waters. But as I say, you know, you can tell the fish that are coming in out of the big lake, and if you go out and explore early in the year, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, you got to have a lot of nerve to go out 28 miles out in the lake and start searching the mid-lake shoals. There's nobody out there musky fishing. There's no mid-lake shoals out there. Well, ducks, you know. Yeah. So there's nobody out there doing that. There's nobody looking for those muskies that are hanging off the big schools. So it could be roaming around there. Maybe, maybe not. But you look at some of the big fish that have been caught and documented relatively good. You know, they're a meal away. But do I believe there's a 70-pounder out there? Ah, uh, it's unlikely. Georgian Bay could be because they say a deep water fish could be, you know, down there feeding on Lake Herring and big Cisco's and stuff, and it may make a difference. But time will tell. I think this year's you're going to see some big fish, and and Mike has put some big fish in down his way too. That, you know, a couple of meals away, they you know they take down a seven or eight pound pike. You add that on to a 55 pound fish, you're getting close. Fish that haunts me that I didn't catch. I haven't caught a 50-pound fish myself, and so that fish haunts me, even though I haven't come across it yet. So uh, that's a ghost. That's the ghost that I'm looking for. In terms of, to answer the question on the, the, the biggest body of water, I'll go with the scientific answer. I haven't spent a lot of time on Georgian Bay, but it was five or six years ago, John Castleman from Queen's University, who's largely regarded as the leading growth expert on muskies in the world, said that this, the fastest growing strain of muskie in the world with the biggest growth potential lived in the St. Lawrence River in the Kingston area, and it's the post-VHS species that was left. So in his mind, on a scientific basis, that was the best, the best place on the planet, the most likely place to produce a world record. Well, first of all, going back to where I think the world record or that fish may come from, since I live on Georgian Bay, I would say definitely not there, so don't go there. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll put that on social media too, yeah. Um, but no, I am also of the honest belief um, that it's going to come from Georgian Bay if it comes. Um, I haven't fished the St. Lawrence or the Ottawa yet, and I will one day, but, and I know if it doesn't come from Georgian Bay, it will be one of those two places. But um, the one fish, it's funny, you, you, you asked that. It was uh, July 9th, 2015, and I had a fish 
I mean, we've all caught big fish. We've all caught big muskies, and we've been around big muskies. I actually had one follow to the boat that day that literally put me to my knees. I, I was I was shaking. Like, I mean, when, when we see some big fish out in G Bay, um, we call some some of them we call them alligators or crocodiles. Like they're just until you see a fish like that, and you guys have all seen these fish I'm talking about. Um, when you see a truly world class fish, it's not the same. I mean. You know, you catch a 20-pound muskie or a 30-pound muskie, and don't get me wrong, those are great fish. We all love catching them, and they're an incredible animal. But when you double that size, when you see a fish that's truly a 50, 55, maybe, you know, who knows, maybe 50, 60 pounds. When you see a fish like that, it changes you, man. Like, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, literally, I mean, I remember the date. Like I said, I know the exact date, and I know exactly where I was. And I know that I went back there for probably two months straight after that, and I've never seen that fish again. I'll, I'll tell you here in a second, if you'd like. <laughs> but no, I will tell you this, though. It was Georgian Bay, and it was in the Wabashine area. So, right by my house. So if I see you out there... I do have a gun mounted on the roof, right? <laughs> no. but, uh, but yeah, it was that one fish. And, that, and, and that's the funny thing, because that one fish does stick in your mind. And yeah, yeah, like I literally am. The more I think about it, you know, it was, it was nuts. But anyway, that was my case. Well... Well, you know what? It's funny you mention that too because, because I've had this happen where other guys I know that are fishing different bodies of water, same days that I am, and it could be all over the province. And, you know, if we get talking to each other, all of a sudden you find out that, hey, yeah, at this time of the day we had a fish. And they'll say, well, you know what? We saw a fish at that time of day. And we saw, you know, and whatever. And then, and then you go, okay. And you take a look and you, you look at your lunar calendar or whatever. And you go, man, oh man, these things are dead on. And it doesn't matter whether I'm here in Georgian Bay or I'm down in the Ottawa river or I'm in Lake of the woods. And, and guys are, guys are going, yeah, we saw fish then as well. We saw fish at that time of day. It's amazing how in sync they are to that stuff. And people don't, and we never talked about this at all, really, but, but the calendars, the lunar calendars and, and uh, playing the moon phases and stuff, it, it's huge. It, at least for me. I don't know how it is for all these guys, but for me, it, it, it's huge. And as I said, that 55 and a quarter that Jamie caught that day, they waited till they went back on the major, right? They never went until then, and it was boom, right away, got that fish, so... Sorry, the next two questions. So, if you, uh, a standard for, for us for when we're casting, of course, and of course I don't do that much casting, it is black and orange. And if you read Bill Hamlin's book, it, he'll, 
laid it right out there. I'm just reading it halfway through it now myself, but I mean, he called it right out there. Um, so uh, all the boys up here signed this one. So the next question, which I'm not going to pick, John, <laughs> that you ask, come on up here when you ask your question, and you can have an autograph bait from the boys. And I was looking for some young lads because I really believe in getting the youth. The youngest person in the room. Where's the youngest person? Oh, come on. <laughs> the Bass, Bass Pro hat. Come on up here. So you're, we talked about confidence, and we talked about how you make confidence. This exact bait, it's a handlebars, and I'm doing a shameless plug for them. I'm not on a pro staff. That voted for a client of me, mine, voted a 56-incher on, I think it was his fourth cast, that exact bait. So when you take that out and throw it in the water, take the hook protectors off. <laughs> you can have confidence that bait will produce. I'd just like to say that uh, the biggest fish that Bill caught was on a hose bait in his book. <laughs> and that's a plug for me. Well, because of where I launch my boat and I keep my boat in the water, I'm basically running into the current, you know, so I'm starting off into the current. Now, as your question of going with the current, going against the current, I'd say it's 50-50. Again, I pound rock piles and I fish contours. We don't have a lot of weed lines where I fish and where I find big fish. I'm fishing for a migratory fish. I'm looking for the big girls coming to the lake, into the river to pre-stage for spawn. You know, that, that's what I'm looking for. You know, where they're going to winter, where they like to hang out. Weather-wise, you know, we talked, we didn't get into weather too much. But weather-wise, I've caught them in bluebird skies. And you can see the pictures, you look them up. Dead flat calm, the days that you think there's absolutely not going to be a fish biting. And I've caught 56, 55 inches. They're all there verified. And I've caught them in the worst fronts coming in where you just, you're insane to be out there in those kind of waves. Snow blowing and everything. So is there a rhyme or reason to musky fishing? I don't know. My greatest thing that I say is you can't catch them from the couch. If you really want to catch a musky, you've got to have your line in the water using the best tools available. And I, another shameless plug for Sean. Old Frank Shelton <laughs> turned me on, and he's a wise guy when it comes to fishing. He turned me on to Sean's baits, I don't know, what, quite a few years ago. And I'd run hose patties on one side of my boat. I'm usually running DKs or some type of spinner bait. On the other side of the boat is strictly hose baits. And why is that? Is because I've caught a lot of fish on them. They make noise. If you've seen any seminars I've done previously, they make a lot of noise. And those hose patties just downright produce monsters. Shameless plug, I still have to buy them off them. <laughs> Oh, 
There's no place in musky fishing for barbless hooks. I second that. There's yeah, no too. place. You don't want to hurt them? Don't fish them. Yeah. The, the, the bottom line is, based on what we do, yeah. you're going to hurt them. Yeah. I, I go to places where you got to use barbless hooks. There's no more miserable experience in your life than having a fish or a fish with a barbless hook. Okay. Come grab it. Go ahead, Bailey. Well, again, it depends on the body of water you're on. I mean, um, what the structure is like, what the depth of the water is like. I mean, is there heavy weed growth? Is there, you know, as Bill had said, where he is, he's pounding rock shoals. You know, you could be 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet of water. I don't fish anything deeper than 30 feet. Okay, so. One atmospheric pressure is pretty much all right. I believe the musky bar is Sure, okay. That's right, that's right. Um, so fishing that spot, you'd run your baits a lot different than you would in a, you know, a shallow inland lake that uh, maybe tops out at 20 feet or something like that. You know what I mean? So, and depending on water temperature as well and time of year, it's going to make a huge difference, right? The warmer the surface temperature is, you may want to run a little deeper if, you know, but it also is all dependent upon where the fish are, right? I mean, if you're, you're, you're talking mostly trolling, obviously, right? So, you know, it, it really, again, everything comes full circle. It comes back to your electronics. Let the fish tell you where to fish, right? Whether it's the fish or the bait, right? Let that dictate where you're running your lures. So, okay. Come grab a hat there, Bill. I don't know what's wrong with you guys not fishing line bait. It, yeah, maybe that's why. Yeah, no, it. You know, we fish it in the fall. A lot of those days, from we really start fishing it from, let's say, in, in let's say in in Wisconsin, Minnesota. You know, same latitude as here. You know, like in that mid September when you start getting, you know, the water temps are dropping. You, you know, get to like the fifty eight degrees and colder. And you get you get bad weather, and all of a sudden, so we fish live bait on these quick strike rigs, so we can set the hook right away on them. Um, you know, we it's it's a fun way to fish, and that you know, in, in the states, a lot of them we can use we can run multiple rods. So you know, in, in Canada, you have one rod per person, but in a lot of other places, we can run multiple rods. So what we'll end up doing is we'll we might have one lure on on a sucker. Let's say we're fishing 15 foot of water, and one sucker's over the side of the boat with 15 feet of line out. Almost, or, or 13 foot just over the side while we're casting. And so sometimes, quite often, your cast will actually act as a decoy. It will bring the fish towards the boat, and then they'll, like, grab the sucker, and we catch them. And that's actually a lot of fun, you know, to have that happen. Other times, we trail them behind the boat, you know, uh, you know, and they might be, you know, almost freelining it like a couple boat lengths, you know, 40 to 50 foot behind the boat where you're casting, and you'll have one sucker that goes by. Steve Herbeck, who's an outstanding musky fisherman on Eagle Lake and a guide, he does a lot of this where his clients are casting. He sits in the back of the boat, runs the boat, and he free lines the sucker like a couple boat lengths behind the boat. And so the fish that follow, by the time the sucker kind of then gets him, he catches them on it. 
and it's pretty amazing. Now, it's really hard around, fishing around snaggy rocks and shallow cover to do it, but he does it. But it's, it's an interesting way to fish with a, you know, 16 to 18 inch sucker or 16 to 20 inch sucker is the live bait that we use but it's it can be effective at times for sure So we're going to take the final question. Uh, any final questions? Right here in the front. Yeah, the, the water level really dropped in, in the bay, and I'm sure some of the spawning areas got hurt. Um, but in, I know the water that you fish quite a lot, and if you would venture back in behind Potato Island or well, yeah, <laughs> down past into the Wabashine Channel, that's kind of more the nursery area. You're going to find a smaller caliber of fish back there. Uh, I think the bigger fish obviously need more food, more room to move. So they're, you know, off the break line in, in the deeper water. Um, you know, surprisingly small fish are hard to catch in Georgian Bay, you know. Uh, Georgian Bay has taken quite a change in the last 10 or 12 years for sure. Um, I'm not a biologist. You, you know, you'd probably have to talk to somebody like that for sure. But uh, the, the small ones are there, but they seem to be in different locations is why you're not really picking up smaller fish. Fish apocalypse. Tends to be more of a stock fish right. thing. They all do the same thing at the same time. So to go along with what Sean said there, um, I hate to admit this, but he actually might know what he's talking about. Um, so in that Wabashine Channel area and stuff, I catch a lot of small muskies in that area. So they're there. They are there. You, you know, exactly. I live on Sturgeon Bay, so. Um, yeah, there's a ton of big fish there, as you know, in, in that whole area. But, but the small fish are there. And as Sean said, Wabashine Channel. Uh, I don't want to say everywhere. <laughs> but, you, yeah, they're there. They are there. And, and you're right. Yes, the water levels took a, a heck of a, of a hit up there. And I don't think it did away with the spawning. What I think it did was it changed the fish. It changed where they spawn. That's all right? They had to find new areas. They don't not spawn. 
You know what I mean? They, they, they have that urge. They need to do that. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. But, but going back to your original thing, the small fish are there. They're in that, just in different different areas. That's all. You're catching big so. fish this fall. There's a guy who just had a legend pass in the tank water. Day back and day, we just got both days. His favorite saying was, a big fish spot is a big fish spot. So if you're catching big fish on your spot all the time, it's because you're fishing it all the time. You've got confidence in it, and it's a big fish spot. I'll tell you what, if you want if you want to find small ones, you can see where the big ones are. And, and, and you can't beat that. I'll go with you at the big fish spot as well. So I'd like to thank uh, Mike Lazarus, Jim Sarek, Sean Mayer, John Anderson, Bill Barber, and Rob Cadeau at the end. A great panel, unbelievably great fishermen, and I appreciate their time. Thank you, everyone. Okay, so um, how was that, man? Pretty good. Well, I didn't learn anything. <laughs> Other people learned some things. Uh, Look, uh, I, I'm not going to – I don't think uh, – me personally, I think both of us, we shouldn't sit here and try to analyze or understand everything that was just discussed. I think that would be like three, four hours of discussion, um, and we'd go on like probably like a thousand tangents. Um, I think the listeners can do that for themselves, and, and this is the kind of uh, podcast or the kind of um, – seminar or discussion that needs to be uh re-listened to because you'll pick up new things kind of like that great movie that every time you watch it again you pick something new up and it's it's another pot a little piece of information you put in your pocket um so i think you know my idea here frank tell me if you agree or not but i think it would be nice if or a good thing if you and i just kind of picked one or two things from each guy that really stood out um, that you found were either really intriguing or reaffirmed something that you want to like really, uh, you know, discuss, or I don't know, anything that, that, that you found that, that you found you want to discuss. And, and I think we do that for each guy. It'll really, it'll really kind of like get our take on it and cover a good 20, 30 minutes of discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great idea. Great idea. Who do you want to start with? Well, before before we start, well, just give me your first impression. Like, you know, give me your first impression of of what what you thought of it. First impression: I need to go to Georgian Bay and fish. <laughs> I was gonna say this the guy, that's the water that we have not really had a lot of experience in, and it sounds like you know we need to, we need to get our asses there. I think so. I mean, like. You look at the Slobland guys, and they've been really pulling the biggest fish, you know, out of there. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't have a good reason. Like, it's not that far from where we live. I mean, I don't really have a good reason. I mean, it's so vast. Um, I think Lazarus said something like uh, he, he, he's been fishing there 25 years and is only 1% of 1% he's covered. So I think uh, for a lot of anglers, and certainly for me, um, it's it's kind of daunting. It's a life investment, and that you and I have got a bunch of life investments already <laughs> that have been started um, in the fishing world and otherwise. I mean, we've we've you know we've been up to Eagle. We we go to Sewell now. We love that place, and uh, occasionally the Ottawa for me and, and the Larry. And it's like how much how much time in a day? But 
I can't see us staying away from that water uh, for very long. I would love to, um, I'd love to get to know someone who's familiar with those waters that uh, could maybe take us under their wing and, and help us out uh, on that water. That would be really cool. But I have no reason for not really exploring that water and uh, in, uh, in giving it its, its respect. It's certainly so beautiful up there and, well, I think how do you find the time? point and, and I agree with you at the end of the day when you have one, like you know with our schedules being what they are and you have one or two days to fire up somewhere and and, and fish hard um it's a bit of a intimidating and daunting task to get on Georgian Bay and and, and figure it out because you won't figure it out and you, if you catch a fish it's probably going to just be luck um if you catch a muskie it's going to be luck or you did all the preparation you needed to do and you just kind of like yeah everything came together but more often than not, we're probably going to go up there and, you know, spend just two days trying to figure out where, where the hell we are on the water and, you know, where we should be fishing and, and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, it's, it is, like you said, uh, these guys have life commitments there and going up for yeah. a day or two, it's, it's, it's a bit intimidating. But, you know, maybe we pick one or two days a, a season and slowly we get to that point where we feel more confident. Yeah, man, I, I think that sounds like a good plan. And, uh, you know, for anybody who's thinking they're in the same boat as the dilemma we're, we're talking about, I think uh, Bill Hamblin's Musky Odyssey, he had some kind of good pointers as to some areas and regions and, and landmarks to start uh, your musky vectors on uh, on Georgian Bay. So maybe some good tidbits there, but uh, we have a winter to think and plan. And uh, I believe we are going to go back to Lac Sewell next season, which is exciting. So I'm sure we'll get there. Okay, so actually, we brought up Mike. So let's let's start with him. Um, what, what give me one or two things that that really kind of blew you away, or or um, you found very interesting about you know in general all the things that he discussed on that panel. Yeah, um, I think uh, one of my favorite things is how he sort of talked about um, currents and temperatures and how those relate to. Uh, fish being active so for example he talks about in high current areas uh, fish feed and operate better in high temperatures Uh, and when the temperatures are lower uh, in currents the fish sort of act differently Mm -hmm. so um, that was kind of really cool for us especially Chris because you know you and I fish in in current water all the time that's the whole life the whole life it's been current you know like the Niagara River is basically it's incredible especially in the lower the current is is vicious you know Uh, you fall in there you're gone right exactly and you know he talks about you know putting the puzzle together finding the spawning areas finding the home range where they feed and live by and large and even anderson talks uh, about how you know a fish is usually a resident fish and a lifelong fish in a certain zone so you want to find that home range where they feed and live um then you have the fall migration of course he talks about that um, and we got to find out where they want to be once the temperatures drop. And that's kind of part of the, of the complex puzzle in, in a guy like Mike Lazarus mind that he puts together that the rest of us anglers should be sort of looking at that approach and starting to build a profile on your home waters and, and where you fish. Yeah, good point. Good point. I mean, I, I, I thought that was quite interesting as well. Uh, what stood out for me from Mike, what it's kind of like, there's two things. Obviously, the tech was uh, so interesting when he was talking about the importance of tech and how how he, when he has his, his guys in the boat, he's not even fishing. He's just studying the tech and the in the kind of onslaught of all this new tech with the zero lines car and the panoptics and and basically understanding how or learning to understand how to make decisions real time from fish behavior. It just blew my mind. Like 
the the feedback you're getting of the fish behavior, which you can't see uh, typically, but now you can with these new electronics, and you're be able being able to make decisions on a fish that's like 40 feet away by knowing and understanding what's happening with that fish. I mean, it's you know that's that's incredible, and learning how to to kind of integrate that with your fishing techniques and whatnot is something that, you know, he's saying that it's instrumental. It's going to obviously end up catching you more fish when you, when you get good at it. And, and, you know, I'll let you, I'll let you speak a bit about that as well. But the other thing I thought was so interesting about him uh, was the fact that when someone asked, how do you prepare and all this stuff? And he's like, look, my preparation is like the 200 days that I'm on the water. And yeah. then the off season and I, and, you yeah. know, you and I being kind of like, you know, into sports and all that stuff and being, being active guys, it's like, he says he takes the, the, the kind of off season to just mentally and physically recover. And I thought that was so interesting. It just tells you the level of commitment and how much this guy puts into fishing and how much he gives his clients that, you know, he takes that off season to kind of physically reset and mentally reset so we can be prepared for the next season. And we all know that that recovery time is essential um, in, in all sports and all, all kind of like activities like that and, and getting, getting yourself uh, that much better prepared for when you start again, that recovery is essential. So I, I thought that was a really interesting thing that not a lot of people really discuss in musky fishing of the, the kind of physical recovery you need. Uh, I, I just yeah. don't think any people operate on the level that he does. It's it's like uh, a Michael Jordan or a Wayne Gretzky ritual. Like it, this is this guy is the pinnacle, right? He is a, he's the king of kings. He's at the top of his sport, if you will. And this is what he does. And it's sometimes it's hard to relate to a guy that's that committed. Um, I, I got to tell you, I thought he had the, the best line of the whole day when he said uh, he's talking about, you know, your guides and, and getting getting knowledgeable guides and, and guides that do what they, these guys talk about doing. He says, I'm not a surgeon, but you better hope the guy taking out your teeth today took out teeth yesterday. Yeah. Uh, that was, I love I that line. <laughs> <laughs> so a great panel. Man, I really hope um, – I really hope this year at the Odyssey that Muskies Canada can somehow match the dynamics of these people on stage. It was it was awesome. Yeah, there was there was a great chemistry there. They all, they all played off each other. I, I will say another great line from Mike was never overlook the obvious. So don't overcomplicate things. Like you know you you know we're jumping here. Some of these some of these points were like from from the the, the end of the, dis, the the seminar or the discussion, but. If we're talking about Mike in general, one of that one of the one of the points that stood out as well for me is never overlook the obvious. Keep everything real simple unless you need to, and unless you need to complicate things, then move in that direction. But don't go into a situation and overthink it and overcomplicate it when you don't need to. Maybe the answer is right in front of you. It's simple. It's you know, and then and, and make sure you you test that before you start complicating things and, and going in a new direction. And I think that's one of the basics that people overlook, right? No, there's no question. This is kind of a good segue into another person on the panel, John Anderson, a guy I fished with a bunch of times, and he is very, very that that I think is one of his real big sort of creeds that he sticks by, and he's always fishing, like he said, two to eight feet of water. He's almost always fishing off weed lines or inside weed lines. This is this is what John does. This is his mo, and I I fished with him in the fall, and it wasn't like we were using fall tactics. Now I'm sure. If we had had no luck, he would have gone into his bag of tricks and complicated matters and and thought outside the box. I'm I'm sure, 
but he didn't have to because we were pulling fish in the boat. So, well, he talks about in the fall that like of all the seasons, that's the one he changes up where it's completely bait fish driven. And he had a real interesting line that uh, bait fish, bait fish is the structure more than structure. So basically that's the structure is finding the bait fish. And so when you were fishing in, in, with him in the fall, did, did you guys do that? Were you, were you hunting the bait fish or were you staying to the kind of shallow weed lines because that was, that was what was producing? Uh, we were doing both. Um, yeah, we were doing both. Uh, I've, it's funny because I've, it's really cool fishing with these guys. And, and even with fishing with Alex before that on the Ottawa, we would see at the same time of day in the same areas, we would see the, the bait fish come in and then we would, we would follow them. And then that's when our lines would start going off. So, th- I mean, I, I've lived that and I can tell you it's, it's what they do there and it's what's working. Um, but we were, we were mixing it up on John's boat. We were also, we were also in late October and it was, um, we had a, a sort of a warm fall up until that point. So the conditions I don't think were traditionally quote unquote fall conditions at that point just yet. I know they are now, but, uh, back then we were fishing in our light gear. We didn't have our winter gear on. It was water temp. Ooh, I can't remember. I want to say water temp was about 50 degrees. I don't remember exactly, but we were going back and forth and, and we were having success uh, doing both. I think we got three fish in the boat two days. Pretty sure we did. Nice. Uh, yeah. there's, there's a few, there's a few other really interesting, interesting things John brought to the discussion. Um, I, uh, you, you, did you want to continue or you want me to, you want me to name a few things? Oh, here? Yeah. Okay, go right ahead. Well, I mean, I, I just really, I really, uh, I related to when he was talking about the, the grind and, and when they were talking about how to motivate anglers as guides and, you know, he's, you know, let's sum it up here. He basically, he's saying you're, you got not, you're going to tell somebody you're going to fish for nine or 10 hours. And in those 10 hours, you might have two, maybe three chances at a fish. So I'm going to do my best as a guide to put you on those chances and, and 75 to 80% of the time, I'm going to get a fish in the boat for you. And so you're going to encounter those fish and you're going to have three chances and then it's up to you. So I think, um, it talks about what we all deal with as musky anglers and trying to stay alert, trying to be ready because we know that that one we miss because we're not alert and we're not ready could have been the fish of a lifetime. And sometimes you see it and you know, right away, Oh my God, what the hell did I just do? Um, yeah. but it, it also related to a comment that Ben Beatty made to me in the boat or, or sorry, on the, on the update, the last version of the update that when I asked him, like, we all know whether Trump's all, uh, whether Trump's everything. And then after that, what's the second most kind of important factor in catching a muskie? And he said, skill. And I thought that was so relevant because when you, when you're talking about John here, he's saying the same thing, essentially he's saying, look, I can do everything. I can get you to the fish um, when the conditions are, are, are great. And I, and I put you on the fish, but when I lead you to that fish at the end of the day, you have to seal the deal, right? You have to have the technique to get that fish to strike and it just, again, you know, reaffirms how much you have to practice and how much you have to study the techniques to get to get ready for, you know, to kind of capitalize on those chances. Or even just to like, like when I'm in the boat, like, look, when we were at Sewell, we did 23 hours on the tail end of the trip. We saw one tiny fish and you remember what it was like right before your giant hit, right? We were just bonded. 
But like, I always try, try to tell myself in my head when I'm at that point that this is the time when this happens. Like when I'm just, my mind and my body's burnt out and it seems like there's no fish here. I always tell myself there there are fish here and these are the times they come. And that's how I sort of wake myself out of that trance. I remember when I was fishing on the French river with my wife about three years ago, um, the French river is notoriously tough for, for, for muskies for casting, especially. And um, we had a few, we were a few hours into the shift and uh, I was at one of my favorite spots on the, on the, uh, on the, on the French and um, we hadn't seen any fish. And, um, a kayaker came right by us really close. And I looked up at the kayaker as I was reeling in and I said, Hey, you seen any muskies? Ha ha ha. And I looked down and there was one right on my bait and I wasn't <laughs> ready because I kind of made a joke like that. Hey, there's no muskies around. You see any muskies? Ha, ha. And boom, it was a beautiful fish nose to my bait. And I, I, it kind of spooked me and I didn't get that smooth entry into my figure eight and the fish uh, pissed off, went to a different direction. So, yeah. Well, we've all, we, we've all been there. We've all been there, and that's that's how we live. We we learn, right? And but yeah, it's it's. I think they 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 discuss it like that. That's something that you just you have to deal with, and you have to be ready. And and now you've kind of just figured out a way to wake yourself up. I think we all have we all have that that kind of little mechanism or technique in our brain that it's like okay i feel the, the slightest thing or I, something looks a little bit off and wake myself up and, and i'm i'm saying that when we just had eight hours or 10 hours of nothing right like how do you stay focused is is, is something that it's so hard to to do so yeah any little change any anything that that, that, that seems a bit off then you kind of just quickly alert uh maybe something's happening maybe something's coming to your to your to the boat but uh, I think John did a great job of summarizing how how that works. It's got to be tough if you're a guide. I mean, look at the first episode where uh, of Fish in Canada where Pat Tryon was with um, Angel Viola's oh, yeah. uh, son, and they would show the shots. They would freeze the shots of um, uh, Nick. Nick, his name's Nick. Of Nick looking up in the clouds, and then they'd put a an arrow down to the water showing a fish following his lure. <laughs> and, you know, if, you if you're not guiding and, and, you know, we've, we've fished with guys who will remain, who will remain nameless that have told us horror stories of people who aren't musky fishermen mm. in the boat going after musky and how difficult it is to just to corral them and instill in, in them the discipline that they need to actually land one of these fish because it's not like, you know, it's not like you're going after walleye or, or even pike, you know, you gotta be, you got to be strong. Well, well, that's a segue to Rob because Rob talked about that. That he's because Rob's a multi-species angler, right? And he was talking mm-hmm. about when he's taken some or someone asks him, he wants they want to they want to go after muskie, and uh, he had that great line that he wouldn't walk across the street to catch a perch. But um, he's saying, well, some of these 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 guys uh, or girls, or whatever, some of these clients coming in the boat. You know, they're 15 minutes in. They're like, where's the fish? <laughs> it's like, uh, buddy, that's not how it works, you know. So, But but as a guide, you got to figure out how to kind of like, you know, turn that around, motivate them, and, and, and make them understand that you might not see nothing for another eight hours and see if you can keep them, you know, like they talk about being cheerleaders, right? You got to keep their hopes up. You got to keep motivating clients that – especially ones that have never done this before. So, and if you're used to catching 20, 30 bass or 
trolling salmon out in salmon salmon season and picking them up left, right, and center, and then you come out for muskie and you don't see nothing for four or five hours. A lot of people might just want to go home, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you, Rob, with Rob's one of the one of my favorite things he said had had little to do with um, sort of practical fishing techniques per se, um, but I love how he's always watching his graph. Um, especially oh, the, when he's yeah, from one spot to another, he's all, he's all over his graph, like watching, you know, and a lot of us, I'm guilty of it. We, we just love zooming from spot to spot, zoom, 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 zoom. Well, maybe take the throttle off a little bit, keep your graph active and engaged and, and just watch. We're, we're, we're lucky, Chris, a lot of the times in the Niagara, we can just kind of peer overboard mm. and see what's going on, especially if the sun's out. But uh, that's not the case in most waters. So that, that was a pretty cool tip, I thought. It was. And, you know, the, there was like an – if you could say there was one kind of um, overriding item that, that kind of everybody discussed was the use of technology and electronics on the boat and how important it was. And that, that story that Rob told was – basically an example of that if it wasn't for electronics he would have never known that 56 inch fish was there and if you remember when we were fishing with mike on eagle lake when we popped into that corner to make a pit stop um at the uh, morning lunch area if you remember <laughs> as, as we were leaving i remember mike saying wait a minute and he looked he saw the bar and he's like okay hang on a second and then he just threw through his red october right down to the bottom and you could, yeah. I don't know if you remember, we were watching this this big banana yeah. come up on the graph that he spawned. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, we were there just doing a pit stop. And he had his he had his eyes on the graph, and he was, you know, as a good guide would, and he was ready. And he knew right away that, like, hey, this is, there's a muskie sitting there right on the bottom. Let's, let's see if we can get it. And I, I remember seeing almost, he had a strike, but he didn't get the fish. But, yeah, that was just a, a fish sitting on the bottom. He pulled up and almost got it in the boat. I did. I did that the year before when I went up by myself. Um, uh, there's a spot there called Mackenzie Mackenzie Cliff or Mackenzie Wall. I can't remember. And I marked something on on the graph. And I'm not great at using technology. Like, like I'm not great at, at using my graph as as much as I should. And I had one of their sort of rental boats. It didn't have the great uh, yeah. you know, the guide. Yeah. But I I saw a big lunker down there. And I threw the other side of the boat, as Bill Hamill would say, the Canadian side of the boat, and I raised a giant. Uh, so, you know, it works. We got the, the technology is there, especially the side scan. I think a lot of people undervalue the, the side scan. Um, and that's how a lot of these guys are spotting fish, especially trolling. Well, let, let's, let's transition there to Jim Sarek now because – when you talk, you just talked about using, uh, you know, not being great at your electronics. Let's face it, like 90% of people listening right now and, and out there aren't great at using their electronics. At the end of the day, it's it's there's so many features and so many ways that you can kind of adjust um, the the settings to, to be optimal for the body of water you're fishing on. Uh, most of us don't care, right? We just want to get out there and fish and have our graph going and, and whatnot and, and, and um don't use it uh, as 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 much or um, as effectively as you could. Now Jim talks about you know spending time doing that and and spending time learning your tech your your electronics. Read the manual um, when you're not fishing for musky or you can't fish for musky. Go out on the water and 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 practice and see you know how it works how it works with your with your boat what you pick up. Start understanding the mapping. 
and and how the kind of interface and all that and, and learn it. Don't start trying to understand this stuff the first day of your fishing trip because right. it's going to backfire, right? And yeah. and I think that that's just like a common thing that like you know all the great all the greats in this world like when you really when you really boil it down they just do simple stuff as simple effective stuff and that's just a simple thing look read your manual understand what you have on the boat and you know good things are going to happen when you when you know how to use your your tools effectively mm-hmm. yeah I mean you're, you're going after the hardest freshwater fish in the world to catch you 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 better do your homework. If you want to cut that learning curve and you want to really do this, otherwise, you know, like like you said before, uh, and like I've experienced, you'll have someone on your boat that after a half hour hasn't seen a fish and says, "Okay, well, what do we do now?" Yeah, well, yeah. It doesn't. Work that way. And I think <laughs> said he even said that ninety percent of the people are not using it effectively. So, but what they also said now is that most of these new units, uh, just having them on auto mode is, is probably going to be good enough because the features are so advanced and uh, you might want to adjust a few things by, by uh, reading, the, reading the manual, but just auto mode alone is going to have you um, that much better than, than, I don't know, maybe the tech you had on your boat uh, five years ago or, or even two years ago. This probably pan, but this panoptics thing is, is sounds like it's going to be as Mike said it's a game changer. Yeah, I, I, look, for a second, I just want to play on what you said before, and I'll give the listeners a tip that helped me a lot. Um, I had Josh Ketchery, who's one of the um, creators of Red October Baits, on my boat this year, and his home water is the Niagara, my home water is Niagara, but the, the difference is Josh is a amazing muskie angler. He's been doing it for many many years. And I, he, he looked at my graph and said, well, hang on, and took about 10 minutes and made a bunch of adjustments and really got it honed in really well. So, you know, if you guys are lucky enough to know someone on your home waters that's a little more seasoned than you are, you know what, maybe offer them a seat on your boat one afternoon and, uh, you know, have them take a look at your graph and see if there's anything that they can do with that piece of equipment relative to the environment that they're familiar with that's going to help you. And he made some adjustments, and uh, I'm using my graph more, and, and uh, it's definitely performing better. So it's a, it's a valuable tip. There you go. Anything else on Jim? You want to you want to you want to pull out? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, well, when the cold when the water's cold or cold water lakes, you're going to notice the fish are staging closer to spawn areas. Spawning areas looking for bait fish. I thought that was a really neat tip. And uh, you know, of course, Jim Sarek is the EF Hutton of. Uh, <laughs> of the murky world when he talks people listen so uh, well, although i really uh, like what about using social media yeah to right on right on i was just gonna say that <laughs> you never expect a guy like jim sarek at home doing that you know that's exactly what i was gonna say and i loved how he said like i i i perform espionage like i basically go through and study all of your all of your your photos, your videos. I look for the structure in the background. I look for the color of the bait, the type of bait, the water conditions, the every piece of evidence I can break out of that and and use to my advantage. I and and I'm just sitting there thinking like this guy. I could just imagine like we put a video up and Jim Sarek's studying the everything from the video. When you think in your head, this guy doesn't need to. He just knows it already. But no, he yeah. he, he wants to. So. Yeah, there's there were some there were some really interesting things said about social media. Yeah, and TV too. I I don't think John Anderson was too happy that I pointed out some of the areas that I identified from watching some of his 
episodes on TV. Uh, granted, I've probably watched those episodes 17 times uh, each. So, um, and I'm also sort of mentally earmarking spots. Uh, you know, I want to buy a place, Chris. I know you do too. Uh, we might in the future, but every time I'm up that way, I'm always sort of familiarizing myself with the environment because I, I want to get a place out there. And uh, the more I fish out there, Chris, I tell you, the less I think about the, the Canadian Shield. Of course, now Georgian Bay is something. I, just I mean, say, don't go out to Honey Harbor and have a, a fish experience and catch a monster muskie because you might change you might change your your, your uh, real estate uh, strategy. I was, I was say, but in Honey Harbor, we're going to spend a million dollars and get a get a shoebox shack. That's true. But, uh, first world problems. We'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So okay, well we can keep moving here. Um, we didn't we didn't really get into Bill Barber yet. Some of the things he said, or um, Sean Mayer. Um, yeah, I mean Sean Mayer. I thought I really I really liked how, the kind of passion behind him talking about making baits and have the importance of mentors, and how he really just like puts so much effort and quality between him and his wife into these baits and uh, doesn't accept like substandard quality and i think that's so evident in you know what happens when he puts those baits on the market and the kind of uh, mm-hmm. kind of like reviews he gets and it's just you know a guy like that probably doesn't need to make baits but you know it's the same it's the same with everybody when you find something you love you you can just do it forever and you want to make sure that, you know, you put your stamp on it. So you're going to put all that effort in to make sure quality is meeting your specification. And uh, he just went on a bit about that. And I really, I really kind of got lost in there listening to him because uh, him talking about importance of mentors is, is something that I think it's really important for everybody to have somebody to look up to when it, whether it's, you know, whatever it is you love doing, but having that leadership to get you on the right path is, uh, was, was, you know, I was glad he said it. Well, I mean, he's obviously a, uh, you know, sort of eccentric genius type guy who's got that X factor in his baits that make them work for so many people. Uh, it was really cool for him to talk about the, the giant flat shads, the giant flat, sh- flat shad, sorry, and how um, how productive they are on, on, on the Larry and, and on Georgian Bay. Uh, I really liked uh, him describing how to work those baits and talking about how just before or just after you're hopping those baits off the bottom or off a shoal, usually when the bait gets hit. So um, I I remember talking to some of the the Slobland guys back at the first Odyssey, and they were talking about, you know, Lexan lips versus metal and how it's important to have a good bait because you're always smacking uh, your baits off the rocks and, and this, this and that. So um, you know, if you're on those waters and you're not fishing like that, you might want to think about, uh, you know, starting, starting getting those baits thumping and, and buying a bait that's going to stand up to it. And I'm sure that's part of the recipe of, uh, of hose baits that makes them so good. And the other thing with Sean, we'll get into after, and I guess we'll close it out with the discussion of the world, you know, the world record. He, he did see, um, Ken O'Brien's oh. fish. So I think that's, that's, that's a little his, piece of history there that I think is really interesting. That, actually that, that was really cool yeah yeah so yeah and then well bill barber was so interesting i loved his kind of like um take on fishing etiquette re- uh, education and kind of like the whole the whole kind of like musky community and how to share 
knowledge between one another and, and it's a tight knit community and people like to help each other out. But, you know, the focus on being educated and understanding, you know, what you're doing on the boat and how you're helping um, the fisheries and the environment and all this stuff. I think I thought that was really interesting on his, his take on that. Yeah, Bill definitely took a different approach. You can tell he's a different kind of guy, but I, I think it's these old veterans that have been so successful. They don't have a chip on their shoulder. They sort of, um, I think, I think a lot of times, and I think I've said this before too, I think they want to impart the knowledge, but I think a lot of times the musky community is guarded. And, and like I said, I think on a previous episode, you'll see a Facebook post and someone will be like, Hey, I'm going to Lake X and anybody got any pointers. And it's like, nobody says anything or just start messing with the guy. But I think when you, um, when you show guys like this that you've put in the time and that you're sacrificing and you know that you're sort of worthy of their knowledge then they really want to help you and that's a really cool part uh i i've experienced it firsthand from a lot of guys anderson obviously even rob caddo i sat and and uh, we sat and had uh, drinks and uh you know he 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 talked a lot about his home waters the the guy lives on on georgian bay he's got a, a nice setup and these guys, you know, they, they want to help. If, if you, you show that you want to be that student and you're going to, you know, respect the information you're given and work hard, this community will support you. And I, I, I wonder if a lot of um, amateur and starting out musk anglers even get there because it can be a little almost hostile when you start asking questions at the beginning. Nobody knows who you are and it's like, well, why should I help you? And I, maybe that turns people off, but... When you, when you stick with it and you put in the time, you know, you're going to get that respect and, and you're going to see the goodness of this community come out. Yeah, we did. We did discuss that on a previous episode, uh, the, the importance of asking questions, the right questions. And and my theory is mo- most or my take is most of the, the, the good, the good people out there will help you if you ask, you know, you know, uneducated and ignorant questions. And, yeah, you might get you might not get the response that you're looking for. Like, you know, the people that get on a boat and say, you know, take me to your, the best spot you've ever had. Like, no, buddy, it took me 30 years to find that spot. When you get the people on the boat that, you know, okay, I, I'm, I'm learning. I'm trying to figure this out. Help me, show me the techniques. See, you know, can you, can you, can you give me some pointers? And, you know, people be more than happy to help you out. And they talk about this in, 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 in this discussion about, you know, one of the questions, direct questions was about, you know, when you have new anglers as guides and, and a lot of them have repeat clients, but of course they do have new guides occasionally. And I just thought Bill was like, it was so genuine. And he, and he talked about no greater, no greater thrill than putting a client on a big fish. And uh, I can attest to that because I, I just felt such a connection with a lot of guides when they put me on big fish and uh, let's, you know, you're, you're there. Uh, we're all part of it. And, you know, when Ben put us on two you know, magical fish and, and the last one, the last, the last monster fish this season was just an epic yeah. event. And yeah. just the, just the kind of like um, jubilation and the, and the shared kind of like excitement and we're all hugging and we're all high fiving and, you know, just like the, 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 the screams, like just cutting through the forest of how happy we are. I mean, that's like, how do you describe that? Right. Like the, the guide, I, I didn't, I don't see him as a guide. I see him as a friend that we fish with. It's like, you don't yeah. share those moments with like 
a business relationship, right? It's just so, it's such an intimate moment. And I just thought that uh, Bill described it perfectly again. Like he's just like putting a client on a, a big lifetime fish is no greater um, feeling for him, not even catching the fish himself. And I think great guides have that in them. Oh man, I could totally, I could totally imagine. I mean, I'm not a guide, obviously, neither are you, but uh, imagine the first time you put one of your boys on their, their first muskie or their first big match, the feeling you're going to have, you know what I mean? Um, I think about me, it a lot. I do. You're right. Um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good point. Even when you catch and I'm in the boat, I'm like, you know, when you got your big fish, I mean, we were all just, we were all just buzzed. I mean, no, it's, it's such a team effort. And they talk about that. Like, I don't know if it was Mike or Jim talking about like, look, you got a guy there piloting your boat. Like you put the rod down and, and study electronics. It's going to be better for everybody in the boat. I mean, that's the take I got. So that guy is actually sacrificing fishing. He doesn't have his line in the water or he's not able to concentrate as much because he's trying to provide data to the, to the other anglers on the boat that are helping them understand the conditions that they're fishing in. So um, without that pilot, without that kind of, uh, leadership uh, of of what's happening it, it it decreases your chances of catching fish so but that 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 in itself decreases that person's chance of catching a fish so you got to see it as a team effort right like without that information without you saying something to me like chris uh, you know we're, we're 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 at 10 feet of water but we're approaching a, a drop off and in about 20 feet and there's some good structure on the on the west side here and uh, oh by the way it's uh, the, the time we're in a major like just hearing those three or four things come together boom, I'm focused. I'm ready. I wouldn't have never done that unless you said it. So, uh, and you might not be able to put your line in the water because you're studying the graph. So yeah, it's just, it's such a team thing. We okay. can't do it without, you know, your team on the boat. Well, it's, uh, what are we now? We're sitting in late November and the season's going to wrap up soon. I'm, I'm going to try and get out one more time. Although I'm, I'm skeptical that I'm going to be able to just because I've got a pretty nasty injury right now and uh it makes being on a boat difficult but we had a hell of a season and um i have no regrets and you know what i had a horrible season the year before and i kept my chin up we got back on the niagara we slayed on the niagara this year and you know what that's it the peaks and valleys of musky fishing you got to decide if you want to be a musky angler you got to ride those peaks and valleys you got to stick with it you got to study and you got to figure out who you are, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Power through and, and, and dig deep and see if you you can uh, come out on the other end after 20 hours of nothing. Um, so let's, I, I mean, I don't know. We could just keep going, Frank. Uh, we're 40, 50 minutes in here. I don't know if we want to just get right to the kind of discussion about the world record fish or you want to pull a few more really important points. I think we touched on everybody. Uh, John, Sean. Jim, Mike, Rob, Bill, I think we, we kind of touched on everybody there. I don't know if there's any, any specific comment you, you, we didn't talk about that you'd like to bring up. No, I don't think so. Um, no, I, I think uh, with, with regard to the world record, um, I was surprised that not everyone said the St. Lawrence. Um, I, was, I was also surprised uh, – Thinking back to our discussion with Angelo Viola, who was adamant that it's going to be New Brunswick, which caught us both off guard. Um, it, it, 
some of the answers surprised me, but uh, it's pointing us in new directions. Um, we're going to be having uh, one of the gentlemen from uh, one of the best musky fishermen out east uh, that fishes New Brunswick. Um, that episode's going to be coming up soon. I'm really excited to record yeah. that because yeah. a whole different zone and a whole different musky world. And to be honest with you, Chris, I would really love to go out there one year and take a trip. For sure. A completely foreign territory. I, like when I, I'm just going to be learning when I talk to him, right? Like at the, at the end of the day, I've been out east. It's 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 a great place, and I can just imagine there's a great fishing culture there. And Angelo did say some really interesting things about you know the lack of pressure and the the, uh, the um, tremendous amount of bait fish that they're swallowing up and. And yeah, he he predicted that a world record could come out of there. The general consensus was Georgian Bay and St. Lawrence uh, system. Um, nobody discussed uh, Lac Soul and 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 in those areas, which you know I, I wouldn't see why that wouldn't be a contender. When I when I saw, I'd like to I like to bring up one point that kind of talks about this this world these um, world record fish. When you talk about, um, I can't remember, help me, Frank, if it was Rob or Bill who, who saw a fish that was like the one that brought him to his knees. Um, oh, yeah. That was Rob. That was Rob, yeah. So we've had that discussion. We've had that discussion with Mike on Eagle Lake. We've had that discussion with um, uh, Steve Herbeck. Now we hear it yeah. from, from Rob. And I, I experienced it firsthand on Lac Sewell, the first trip when that dinosaur came to the boat and then I ended up um, pulling out, you know, a 50 plus fish at the end of the trip. And Ben, first thing he said to me after, after that fish was released, if you remember, he said, okay, one was bigger. Yeah. He said that, that fish was an amazing fish, but just remember three days ago, how much Mm -hmm. bigger that fish was than the one you just let go. And, you know, and I was just like, that kind of stuff sits with you for the rest of your life. But what I did learn from Mike, from Steve, and and also from Ben is, don't chase that fish. It will ruin your it will ruin your season and your career if you're going to just do it for a life. Like uh, uh, Steve, I think mentioned that he saw his fish or the white ghost he called it, and you will never see that fish again. And mm-hmm. the the worst thing you can do, which Mike talked about was when he saw his uh, fish that, you know, brought him to his knees, he spent like three months trying to find it. And then he realized it was just futile. And it, the chances of seeing that fish again are pretty much zero. So just just enjoy the moment if it happens to you, but don't go chasing that fish because that's, as we talk about in this discussion or as they talk about in this discussion, these are fish that live on in, in different areas and you might, they might come up once in their lifetime, and that's that was that you just got lucky and saw it. But these are fish that have never been stung before. Um, you know, they're going to have massive girths in the middle of the in the middle of the summer. So yeah, um, I, it's just like it's 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 a great discussion. But if you do run into one, don't don't chase it. Yeah, don't don't change your fishing strategy because you're not going to catch other fish incidentally targeting fish like that because exactly. they're just that says big fish are different. And um, you know, Herbie described that fish as a picnic table bench gliding <laughs> through the water. And I, I tell you what, man, like I I, I can still I can still put myself in that little cabin because that's where we do the recording with our bottle of scotch in front of us. And I'll never forget the way Steve's face changed when he started talking about that fish and the way he looked at us it was 
Man, that was well, a and the whole the whole like the whole uh, atmosphere just dropped like uh, like the barometric pressure just right. dropped, and it was like things got quiet. Yeah. Like you said, we were we were we were drinking scotch. He had the uh, the uh, root beer whistle that he was puffing, yeah. uh, and at the end of the day, when he told that story, exactly what you said, everything changed, and it was just like focus. And we were listening, and we're like, okay, you, you yeah. saw something that uh, you know, and you've been fishing for forty years that uh, you obviously saw something that would be uh, close to a world record fish. Yeah, man. I, uh, it's funny. We talk about that and I'm like, I got to get back to Eagle. And then we, you know, we talk about Georgia Bay. I get over to Georgia Bay. We've, uh, we've been lucky. We've, since we started this podcast, we've had some really good adventures on some awesome lakes with some really great people. And I'm excited for the future. I'm really excited. Well, I want to, there's one, uh, there's another thing I want to say about that, that discussion, which I thought was so interesting of John being the guy he is, he he totally went science based on them, and he said, "Look, uh, you know, Sean Castle. Let, let me let me just uh, see if I got this." Or John Castleman from Queen's University um, um, did a did a study, and 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 basically the outcome was the fastest and biggest growth, the biggest growth potential of any musky strain was in the St. Lawrence uh, in the Kingston area post vhf vhs strain or whatnot I don't, i'm not sure what that means but he was saying from a science and, and database uh that supports the location for the potential of the the, the biggest muskie and and obviously um potential world record yeah you pick yeah. up on that yeah totally he um I think, geez, I want to say John Castleman's also doing the study on the, on the, um, sorry, on the soda water as well. But uh, yeah, I, I, I totally, totally picked up on that. I think that's uh, pretty astute. Actually. It's so John, right? It's like let's go to science, let's go to facts, let's go to the data we've collected and see and see where you know that kind of the category of fish that they can be the biggest or produce the biggest musky. And, and I thought, you know, interesting. So everybody had their own take and, uh, but again, it was the general consensus was Georgian Bay and, and uh, the St. Lawrence system. I, yeah. I don't know. Does it really matter? I mean, I don't no. know. I'm not even sure it matters because like we're at the end of the day, we're talking of a swing of maybe two or three inches and, when, you know, when you said I was surprised Sewell is off the list, and I'm, I'm thinking in my head, is it really off the list? I'm not. Maybe they didn't say it, but like, I, I don't know. It's uh, I, it, Georgian Bay is like an ocean. It's so yeah. big. They yeah. sure produce big fish, uh, and then you get these vast rivers like the the Larry, where we know the fish are getting big and strong and fat because they're always in the, living in the current. Um, you know, and then you get a big lake like Sewell, and it's like. You know, or what Herbie was telling, you know, I, I think the odds are this is where the record's going to come out of because of the volume of fishermen and the circumstances. But the God's honest truth is who knows? It's going to come wherever it comes out of. And uh, I hope I'm the guy who gets it. <laughs> well, Jim, Jim actually had a, an interesting point on that as well. He's like, you know, they, uh, he thinks it, it won't be caught for a long time because of the conditions that you need to be in to catch that fish. And he's kind of like the category for him is like a really late fall, rough condition on a body of water that is not populated. And, you know, when you just add all those factors up, then you're, there's not a lot of people in that situation, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, and then not a lot of water. And maybe that's why Lazarus is always talking about being the first on new water. I mean, not maybe. I'm sure that's the reason. Looking after that big fish, looking for that big giant that's never seen a lure. You know. Well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm confident there. I've, I feel confident that that one I picked out of uh, Sewell this year was a was a first time catch. It just had the the cleanliness, like it was just super clean, and it was the girth was amazing, and it just the mention he's like that. That's a fresh fish that hasn't been caught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? We 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 changed tactics, did something different, and you got a fish to bite that probably has seen a hundred bucktails in its life and never once took a swipe at one. And we went outside the box and did something different that I'm sure Ben and other anglers don't do very often there. And lo and behold, bang, you know, do something different. Right. We talked about that before. So, you know what, I think uh, we're learning, right. And, uh, and it's paying dividends and um, we've had some great podcast guests and some great guides that have given us uh, been very generous with their time and knowledge and, this is how you become a good musky angler. You listen and you learn and you apply and you work hard. Actually, it's, that's bang on, Frank. And, and, you know, selfishly, it's this podcast has been, you know, the number one educator for me. And despite doing this is how I became such a better musky angler. Uh, there's no, no doubt in that in terms of like the knowledge that we've acquired over the last three years. Um, you know, I, I don't underestimate my fishing uh, skill or knowledge, but when I came into this uh, for muskie, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was at zero, and I just had you know applying my 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 fishing techniques that I that I had my whole life, but it was just it was like reset. Okay, let's start over and figure this out the right way, and the right way is preparing, educating, learning, talking to the right people, and that's what we've done. And and as you just said, there it's it's paying dividends. It, it sure is. And I tell like at my gym, at my jiu-jitsu gym, when I get new students coming, I'm gonna, I tell them you, the first six months, you're going to feel weird. You're not going to feel like you're learning anything. But then when somebody new comes on to the mat, you're going to realize that you're different. And when I talk to some of our, our mutual friends that are fisher buddies of ours, but not musky fisher buddies, but occasionally dabble, you know, and I talk to them, it's like, like I, I really realize how much more I know about this, this sport. Um, when I'm talking to sort of a novice now and again, due to the podcast and selfishly you say, but selfishly is correct. We, we only started this podcast so we could get better at fishing for muskie. We didn't expect anybody to even listen. Right. That's all we wanted to do. We had a bit, uh, a bit higher ambitions than that, but yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we weren't expecting to have the, the feedback that we got and we totally appreciate all the people that have been supporting us, but you're right. Like, it wasn't to set out and, and, uh, um, yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, interesting. And, and, and like you said, now you speak to people and you have this wealth of knowledge with you and you can even just say, look, go to the podcast, start from the first, start from the beginning and you'll, you'll see the, the, the learning curve that we've went through and, and you can follow it and you can be part of it and you're going to become a better angler just by listening and we got some, you know, great guests lined up in the future that are just going to, we're just going to keep this trend moving in the right direction. Um, I think this has been a great series. I, I, I love the idea. I love the partnership we made with Muskies Canada to allow us to re-release these because not everybody had a chance to get to the Odyssey. And of course, 
we get to hit a whole different audience that wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even be going there. And, and that knowledge is now with them. So uh, let's keep this going and uh, have some more great guests down the pipeline. Down the pipeline, uh, I'm excited to have uh, one of the the most uh, prolific and successful guides in the Green Bay area coming up. Uh, the gentleman out east I talked to, we're just teasing this out because we're still setting up the logistics for these interviews. But guys, we're going to get some really great anglers in some really cool locations that uh, we haven't really uh, dived deep uh, in yet and uh, hopefully bring even more listeners into the fray and um, you know what, give our listeners all sorts of options on where they want to plan that next musky dream vacation, because you know what, we're, we're in Ontario, we're lucky, but there's all sorts of great musky lakes all over the place. And uh, it's our job to bring them to the listeners. And that's what we're going to do for 2020. And let's try to get John Castleman on. I'm so interested to hear him talk from a biological perspective, the kind of genetic analysis and the biology of the fish strain that he's talking about that has the potential to be the biggest musky produce the biggest musky in the world so let's talk to let's talk to john and see if we can get his contact and and maybe have a discussion with him i think he he should be open we can probably set that up so i'll definitely look into that and uh we'll just keep her going all right man well anything else no i think that's it uh you know, follow us on social media at Ugly Pike. Go to uh, theuglypikepodcast.com. We'll have a new website up. Sign up for the updates, awesome bulletins. And uh, that's it, guys. Close out the season strong. And uh, hit us up on social media if you want to talk. If you have guest suggestions, we are all ears. Take the, take the off season to prepare physically, right. recover, mentally recover, and be ready for the spring. You got it. Okay, talk right. to you later. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening.